And I really appreciate your theme, uh, cross-training. And I hope some of you noticed, I hope some of you noticed, the cross in your handout. Uh, last night I was looking at that. Wow, you know, stethoscope, tools, so on and so forth. Certainly, the tools of all of our trades need to be utilized to bring people closer to that center of influence, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this morning and the next two mornings, we're going to be spending a little bit of time surveying or looking at different aspects of the cross of Christ. And this morning, as you can tell by the title, it is the offense of the cross. And Several years ago, many years ago, uh, before I was married and then after married, my wife and I worked in a vegetarian restaurant in New York City, kind of a hands-on, gritty medical missionary work where individuals came in. We fed around 400 people a day, um, four to 500 people a day, and just was, you know, really people coming in and out of that place. But as I was the manager of that vegetarian restaurant, A Country Life, I remember reading in the book, volume seven of the testimonies, I believe it was, where Ellen White made a comment that the manager's work was to make sure that the workers were so in tune with Christ, so in tune with the Holy Spirit, that when he prompted them to speak to a customer, they would hear his voice and reach out in ministry. That kind of really struck me. You know, manager's work, you want to make sure you're making money, and the decks are clean and everything's going well. But she had a very different focus on the manager's work. It was really soul winning. And I would say the same thing for all of us here gathered this morning, the medical professionals. You know, we have a work to do, which we need to accomplish. Vegetarian restaurant without food served in a timely manner really wouldn't be successful. But in addition to that or beyond that, of course, is that whole dimension of pointing people to Jesus Christ. And so for each one of you here, you know, for this whole conference, are we living so closely in tune with Jesus that we can hear his voice when he tells us, you need to say something a bit more to this patient, this person, this individual that you meet. That's really God's desire for us, is to be so susceptible to the Spirit, um, you know, One little, sorry, uh, experience that came to mind just quickly. I was working at the restaurant, the cash register, again, several hundred people coming through, and all of a sudden, the voice said to me, look up. And I looked up, and a person walked in, and the voice said, that man is going to steal. Just like that. And of course, that man did try to steal, and we stopped him during his process. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have that same kind of an experience all the time when we're working with people? where the Holy Spirit would simply say, no, no, now this person you need to say this to. I believe God wants to give us that, and he wants to help us draw people closer to the cross. Now, as we think of the cross, there's all these beautiful quotations that we have. Um, the spirit of prophecy, we love to talk about the cross. We sing about it. Here, Great Controversy 651, the cross of Christ will be the science and song of the redeemed through all eternity. In Christ glorified, they will behold Christ crucified. You know, our center, and just a tremendous thought here, that throughout eternity, eternity is going to be a very, very, very long time. And, and But all that time, we'll be focusing on our study this morning and throughout this conference this weekend. 
Again, great controversy, 652. The mystery of the cross explains all other mysteries. I just love that statement, really. The mystery of the cross explains all other mysteries. And then she goes on, the light that streams from Calvary, the attributes of God which had filled us with fear and awe, appear what? Are you awake this morning? Fear appear what? A beautiful and attractive mercy, tenderness, parental love are seen to blend with holiness, justice, and power. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the power of the cross. One more, quickly. To remove the cross from the Christian will be like blotting out the sun from the sky. So, you know, so we really rejoice in the cross, and, and we could multiply quotations like this and, and revel, it, revel in them for a long time. But that poses a problem for us. And that's the problem I want to study with you this morning is the Bible doesn't talk about the cross quite like that. I mean, it, it does in certain senses. Galatians 6, 14, Paul says, that's the only place I'm going to glory. But Paul also calls the cross an offense, a stumbling block, foolishness. And so the question I want to explore this morning is, what did that mean? What did it mean in Paul's day, in the first century, you know, Judea, Palestine? What did it mean to begin to preach about the cross? How did people react to that? And if it was such an offense, and it was far greater than we understand, how in the world did it come from this position of being so offensive and, and such a scandal and foolishness, moronic, really, the word in the Greek, um, how did it become from that position to the thing that we're going to study for all eternity, to the thing that we sing about, to the thing that that's where we're going to glory in? What, what's happening there that moves it from this terrible offense to this place of glory? So if you have your Bibles, um, which I hope you do, turn with me first of all to Galatians 5. We're just going to look here. Momentarily, then we'll turn to our main text this morning. But Galatians 5, verse 11. Galatians 5, verse 11. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block, the scandal, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And then, of course, in verse 12, I wish that those who were troubling you, encouraging you to be circumcised another, would mutilate themselves. You know, the knife would slip and they would do damage to themselves. But Paul talks here about this offense of the cross. What is that offense? What did it mean in Paul's day? And how does it become transformed for us? So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Tremendous passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look on and off all the way through verse 18 onward to the beginning of chapter 2, if time allows. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross, uh, the content of the cross, is what? It's foolishness. It's, it's moronic. It's an idiotic idea to certain people. To whom? To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. 
Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I was thinking about this, obviously, in relation to the cross, but let's expand it momentarily this morning. You know, where is the wisdom? Where's the wisdom of this age? You know, is it possible that God wants to take the things that this world counts so precious and turn them upside down? You know, our education, we become very proud, and rightly so, in a certain dynamic of education, our education, medical education, theological education, whatever it is, but God says, you know, from my point of view, that could really be foolishness. And I think last night of Dr. Guthrie's talk, people who are here are searching, how do we help chronic diseases, which are a plague in this country? And Dr. Guthrie's idea is, well, you know, it's simple, change their lifestyle. I mean, you know, easy, right? We could, like, change the whole healthcare crisis pretty quickly if you could just get people to identify differently. Really? Like, could it really be that simple? Can you really, you know, help diabetes that way by making some lifestyle changes? Or, you know, you know, does water, could water really work for certain issues like hydrotherapy? God wants to take the things of the wisdom of this world and do what? He, you know, they, he wants to turn them upside down. The wisdom with this world was, is foolishness with God, but God has some things that appear to be foolish to the world which really are God's power, which really are God's power. To pray with a patient? I mean, are you serious? Well, God's serious, right? God's serious. So, but let's think about this, continue on first a little bit, verse 21. Sorry. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through what? The foolishness of? Okay, so King James says the foolishness of preaching as if the act of preaching is foolish. And I would agree with that. The act of preaching is a bit foolish. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying it's the content, the foolishness of the message preached. It's the word of the cross that is foolishness. It may be foolish to stand up and preach. That, that's a different issue. But he's saying it's the foolishness of the content of the preaching, which is Christ crucified. That is foolish. And he goes on to tell us um, in verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, a scandal, an offense, and to the Gentiles foolishness. So when Paul says Greeks and Jews, he's really talking about the whole world. On one hand, you have the, let's call it, secular world, although that really wouldn't fit in that day, the uh, Greco-Roman world. To them, preaching of a crucified redeemer is foolishness. It's idiotic. It does not make any sense at all. And to the Jews, to preach that, to the other part of the world you're trying to reach, it's a stumbling block. It's an offense. Why? 
what was it like? Well, let me share a little bit what it was like in, in Paul's era. Um, and what I would like to quote from is an author. His name is Martin Hengel. He's a New Testament scholar. And, excuse me, he's written a small book called Crucifixion in the Ancient World. And he goes through and he talks about how the Romans looked at it and how the Greeks did it, looked at crucifixion. And notice what he says. Crucifixion was widespread and frequent, above all in Roman times. But the cultured literary world wanted to have nothing to do with it and, as a rule, kept quiet about it. So crucifixion was practiced all over the place as a punishment, particularly against slaves or rebels. But if you read, as we read back, what Romans wrote, very extremely rarely did they even mention the cross. It was such an offense. The gospel records are the most full accounts that we have from the ancient world of a crucifixion. And the gospel records are very brief. You know, Mark says, and there they crucified him, or they took him and scourged him. But the gospel records, in all their brevity, are the most detailed accounts from the ancient world of crucifixion. Uh, Cicero, the Roman lawyer, was defending a man who was being threatened with, with crucifixion um, before the time of Christ shortly. And in Cicero's trial, he tries to make this appeal to the people that they would not sentence this man to death by crucifixion. And notice what he says. Even if we are threatened with death, we may die free men. In other words, if you need to put a Roman to death, do it as a free man. Don't crucify him. But the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but liability to them, the expectation, indeed the very mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. You know. You just wouldn't say the word cross in polite society. It was tremendously offensive. Why? Well, first of all, obviously, clearly, it's a horrendous death. Stripped naked, hung up publicly, uh, immobile, sun beating on you, insects burrowing into your skin, tremendous pain from which, of course, we get the word excruciating. You know, a horrendous death, long, drawn-out, agonizing death where people came by and mocked you and ridiculed you. You know, there's a, just the physical torture of it was horrendous. But it was a tremendous shame in society. It was reserved not for free men, but for slaves particularly, slaves that rebelled at different times. Um, in fact, the very first mention of crucifixion comes from a writer by the name of Platus, and he wrote a, a kind of a play called Bacchidides. But the, in the story, there is a slave um, named Chrysoulus who is afraid that his fraud, he was deceiving his master, he's afraid he's going to be discovered. And his name is going to be changed to Chrysoulus. So the first name means gold bearer. The second name, name means cross bearer. 
And so this slave who has been deceiving his master is afraid he's going to be discovered and he's going to have to bear his cross. One of the first mentions, probably the first mention of crucifixion. And so crucifixion in Roman society, who got crucified? Slaves. In fact, there was a Roman law that said, if you knew your master was planning to rebel against the government, and you as a slave did not report your master, you would be crucified. Of course, if you did report your master, and they didn't like the way you reported it, you could be crucified anyway. But again, to the society of the day, the preaching of the cross, the mention of the cross, was a tremendous offense in all society, really. And this is where your savior is? You know, we talk about contextualization, and contextualization is a good thing. But Paul, Paul did, in the book of Acts, he tried to use you know, the society of the day to try to make his, to reach individuals. But to communicate with individuals, to communicate with the crowds, to communicate with slaves, that the one that's going to help you, the all-powerful, the mighty God, is one that was crucified, was truly foolishness. I'm looking for someone to help me out of my situation as a slave. I want to become a free man. And now you tell me, Philippians 2, verses 6 and onwards, that, that the one who was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself nothing, emptied himself, and took upon himself the form of a, yeah, not servant, slave. And then being formed and found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I'm a slave. I want to be free. And you're telling me that that is my redemption? It's foolishness in the first century. It's something that can't be grasped. Very hard for us to you know, kind of get our minds around. This really is the message. So there's an inscription uh, in Rome. This is a drawing of the inscription. The inscription's not quite so clear. But you can see here that there's somebody, a man, standing before a figure that is, appears to be crucified. Of course, the figure has an unusual head. The figure has an ass's head. On it. And the inscription reads, Alex Menas worships his God. So this is graffiti found in Rome of a, apparently a Roman citizen, a Greek citizen, a Gentile, who has come to believe that Christ is the Messiah. He's worshiping him and he's being mocked. Somebody made this graffiti and the head on the man being crucified, it's an ass. It's just, a, you know, again, it's, a, it's graffiti, it's repulsive, it's, it's mocking Really, Paul, this is the message that God's using to change the world? So from the Roman side, from the Greek side, the cross is foolishness. Why? Because it was a sign of Roman power. It was a sign of Roman authority. Just before Jesus was born, or around the time Jesus was born, um, there was a city being built, a several kilometers, a few miles away from Nazareth, called Sephorus. And it's quite likely that Jesus' father, Joseph, and probably Jesus as he was growing up later on, went there to work. The city was being built, and it became the capital of that region of Galilee. 
somewhere around the time when Christ was before, born, just before, just after, somewhere in that region, there was a rebellion of Jews against this garrison, this city, Sephorus. 2,000 Jews were crucified as a result of being defeated in that rebellion. 2,000 Jews. The, for the Romans, who gets crucified? Rebels, slaves, the lowest people in society. But what is this? It's the power of God. It's the thing that we're going to study for all eternity. And if you take it away from me, it's like taking the sun out of the sky. So how does this happen? How does it move from this tremendous offensive situation to where today all we want to say, all I want to do is glory in the cross of Christ? Well, um, and the Passover lambs were slain in a more humane way than was Jesus, if we think about the cross. But for the Jews, Paul tells us it's a stumbling block. It's, it's an offense. Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy, a familiar verse. Paul refers to it in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. But let's read it from Deuteronomy. To Jewish thinking, of course, the cross has its own scandal. Certainly, there's the scandal that it is the sign of Roman oppression. Every repetition of a crucifixion would bring fresh to mind in, in the Jew in Paul's day what happened in Sephorus, those 2,000 people being put to death. But in addition to that, there is a religious stigma offense to the cross. Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting in verse 22 and 23, if any man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not all night, excuse me, his, his corpse shall not hang all night on the cross, on the tree. But you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is cursed of God, the curse of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Statement in Deuteronomy, put somebody to death, and this would be putting someone to death and then nailing them to the tree, as we find at different times in the Old Testament story where people were publicly displayed that way. This is a sign that you are underneath the curse of God. You are cursed of God. And Paul makes this application in Galatians chapter 3. So, so here we are in the first century, grown up in a Jewish family. We're under Roman oppression. We understand the power of the cross. We see it all over the place. It's very visible. You know, Romans use it as a symbol of their authority, their dominance. And then we have this background from, from our upbringing since we were little kids, just like many of you here have a background of upbringing from your Adventist background. I don't. I grew up in a Jewish family and became a Christian later in my life. But, you know, just think of how much when you grow up with your, your faith, how it impacts every aspect of your thinking. So here, you know, Jews in the first century, you know, if you're hung on a cross, man, you are accursed. About 100 years before the birth of Jesus, there was a ruler, um, a Hasmonean ruler, descendants from the Maccabees. And uh, in the Qumran scrolls, they discovered a temple scroll. And in this temple scroll, it reveals that one of the Hasmonean rulers, one of the priests that was kind of a priest king at that time, there was a rebellion against him. He was a very tyrannical ruler. His, his response to this rebellion was to crucify 800 Pharisees. Crucify them. 
What is he saying? He's not just simply saying, hey, look, I've got Roman authority. He's saying what? You guys, you're rebelling against me? You are under the curse of God. You've lost your battle, your rebellion. And yet, that's the very message Paul begins to preach. Foolishness to the Greeks, to the Romans. It's a symbol of Roman authority. It's a symbol of Roman power. Only slaves get put on the cross. It's an offense. It's a stumbling block to the Jew because to the Jews, now anybody that's crucified is, is, is underneath the curse of God. And so the question for us now is, how does an object of such universal scorn become the center of hope? Now, if we're to step back for a little bit and think about this, you know, kind of from a more historic point of view, certainly we would say that the influence of Constantine, you know, the great ruler, Sunday Law Constantine, he had a tremendous influence in this. You know, when he merged paganism, when he became a Christian and he elevated Christianity to the religion, the predominant religion in the Roman Empire, the cross no longer was this sign of shame, but it was a sign of what? Now you were on the in-group. You know, this was a sign. Now, now you're on the inside. And, and so certainly there's this whole dimension uh, there of the expansion of the cross through that, that kind of a method. We can't discount, of course, the adversary working to really obscure the meaning of the cross. But think about it for a moment. Paul lived several hundred years before Constantine. And, and sort of the disciples, and so did all the people that were reading 1 Corinthians and the church expanding. Something else needed to have happened to make it so that this place of revulsion, this place of shame, this revulsion, this offense, this scandal becomes the thing that Paul says he's going to glory in. You know, well, maybe we could say, you know, Paul, he had that vision on the road to Damascus, so maybe that's his excuse. Maybe the first disciples, well, they saw the resurrected Christ, and so that would be pretty dramatic helping you change things. But what about everybody else that heard the preaching? Wherever Paul went, you know, Paul goes to these, you know, backwaters. He goes to these cities and he's talking to these communities, whether it's Peter or Paul, and they're communicating to the Jews or they're communicating to the Gentiles, the Romans, and they're trying to break through this huge cultural barrier and get people to see that this is the power, the place to glory in. What is it? that makes the transformation. Well, it's the one who's dying on the cross. It's the import behind the life of the one who is dying there. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians. Highlight something for you. You know, as we look at the cross, there's so many different dimensions this, to, to come to it at. But who is the actor, who's the active agent in this passage? Let's go back to verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is whose power? It's God's power. It's the power of God. Verse 20, the second part. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of who? In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know 
Who? God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign. You know, Jews are used for, for looking to see tremendous things. God opened the Red Sea for the Jews, and he uh, fed them manna in the wilderness, and he stopped the sun. And God was continually doing signs for the Jewish people. The Jews are looking for the signs, and the Greeks, they're seeking after wisdom, their philosophies. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What changes the cross from this, and, and when I say changes, we can't leave the roughness of the cross, we can't leave the offense of the cross, we can't leave the foolishness, the, the agony of the cross, the fact that Christ is made cursed of God on the cross. We can't leave any of that, but it's transformed because Christ is revealing God to us at the cross. And that is the important thing. Todd said it last night as he was walking us through his fast perspective. I hope you remember what all those four letters stand for, fast, faith, attitude, service, and uh, uh, transformative testimony. Um, as he walked through that toward the end of his presentation, he said that God revealed his identity at the cross. That's where the transformation takes place. Because we begin to see who it is that's dying at the cross. It's not simply some Galilean prophet. It's not simply some carpenter. It's not simply some agitator. It is God incarnate. And that God is being revealed at the cross. God's trying to show us the way he is through crucifixion. Through coming down to the most repulsive thing that, that could be dreamed of in the society, the thing that was the most repulsive, that was the most offensive, that offended people's sensibilities, that turned upside down their educational view of things, that turned the world upside down, was... This is God in human flesh on the cross. And he's coming to the lowest place that he can for you and for me. And you may think that's crazy. I understand. Because it is crazy. To who? To the world. But it's in that very craziness that the cross, the symbol of the cross is transformed and becomes a symbol of power. It becomes a place of glory. You mean like, really? Really? God, you're inverting the whole order of the universe, and instead of being you know, this powerful potentate on your throne, you're coming down and you're dying on a cross? That's who you are? Yeah, that's who I am. You want to know me? Yeah, you can see me in nature. You can see me in the thunderstorm. You can see me in the hail. You can see me all over the place, but if you really want to know me, that's where I am. That's who I'm working with. The weakest, the most tormented, the, you know, the poorest, the, the most despised. If we lose sight of the divinity of Christ, we lose sight of the meaning of the cross. Lose sight of the divinity of Christ, and the cross loses its meaning. It's, just, it's still a scandal. It's still crazy. It's just a man being crucified. But if it's really God in human flesh, 
if the cross is really revealing God to us, then it, it's still a symbol of shame, but the shame becomes glory. And it becomes the place where we're going to sing for eternity. There's a self-revelation that takes place at the cross, and it demonstrates that our God is a self-sacrificial God. This is how God chooses to communicate about himself. I'm the most giving one. I'm the one that's willing to, to go to any extent to have you be with me for eternity. That's God's great desire, isn't it? To dwell with us for eternity. And he's willing to go to any extent to make that happen. Many years ago, I was in southern New England. I was pastoring up there, and there was a camp meeting. And um, southern New England camp meeting was, was great, still is great. Back in those days, you know, we had tents. Anybody go to camp meeting in tents these days? Yeah. Ah, a few of you. So these tents were old, you know, the canvas tents. And um, <clears throat> one night, I went to bed, fell asleep. In the middle of the night, somebody came running into my tent and said, there's a fire, quick, get up. So I ran out of my tent and around the corner, and sure enough, there was a tent that was in blaze. And so we started filling water up, and we're trying to throw water on the flames of this tent, which is just being consumed. And as I took one huge container of water and threw it inside the tent, hit a bed, and all of a sudden, when it, water hit the bed, a figure, a girl who had been laying in the bed, sat up. Probably a reaction to the water and the nerves. I'm not sure exactly what took place. You know much better than I do. She sat up, and I said, there's somebody in there. And you know, we tried to pull her out, um, airlifted her to a hospital. She passed away. Camp meeting, you know, Sunday night, Monday, something like that, beginning a camp meeting. All week during camp meeting, I'm like, how do we go on? How do we continue camp meeting? And how do you, how do you deal with this kind of tragedy? And I remember being in the sound booth uh, there in the main auditorium, and, and just the looking out through one of the windows and thinking, God, where was her angel? And God brought me back to the cross. Where, was it? where are Christ's angels? Well, they were right there, weren't they? They were right by the cross. And God said to me, my angel was right next to her. And the cross reveals to us how God is willing to be with us in all sorts of situations, in suffering and hardship. And there's things in this world that happen that we don't understand, but it's not as though God is distant to us. God was right there, Father in the Son at the crucifixion. And I thought to myself, God, your angel was right there. And there's still a lot of questions I, don't have, I, I do have about that experience. But if we look at the, the cross, Jesus was shamed by onlookers. Jesus was separated from his Father. He is rejected. He's repulsed by men. Christ's life looked like a failure, and his ministry was a total fiasco from an earthly point of view. But that's what God does. God steps into those kind of areas. That's who God is. That's what God's trying to reveal. Christ was abandoned. He's left alone. His disciples, the Bible tells us, they all forsook him and fled. He was disowned by his family, and John tells us he was disavowed by those he came to save. But that's God in human flesh. God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And it's that death, it's the meaning of the one who died there, it's who was dying there that transforms the cross. But what about us? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul continues here. 
in verse 25. The foolish, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26. Four, consider your calling, brethren. There's not many wise according to the flesh. Excuse me. Um, Verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things which are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, why? So that no one may boast before God. The cross is foolishness, and those who accept it are quite foolish themselves, or they ought to be. At least that's what Paul's trying to say. Look at yourselves. Look at the city of Corinth here. There's not many foolish, there's not many wise of you. There's not many mighty, there's not many strong. But you know, we have a real challenge. Our facilities that we work with, our training, our our educational videos, uh, our success in curing or reversing or slowing chronic diseases, do we ever lose sight of the fact that all of our success really belongs to God? When we become successful in being medical missionaries, do we begin to lose sight of the fact that really what we're doing is very foolish? If we're really medical missionaries and we're really trying to bring people to Christ and trying to get them to change their lifestyles. But sometimes we become impressed with our own successes, our facilities. Now, look at you know, where I work. Or, and I, don't, I don't know how it is among physicians, um, but I know among pastors and academics, there's a little bit of competition. And I don't know, probably physicians are immune from this, maybe? Probably not. You know, yeah, look at the results I get. Look where I work. Look what I've produced. Great. But believe me, according to God, any of the success we have, where does it come from? It comes from him. That's one of the reasons he wants to give us medical missionary work. You know, yeah, change somebody's lifestyle. How much success can you? I can tell somebody that. Of course, they wouldn't believe me like they believe you. But really, our whole purpose in being medical missionaries is to reveal God. That's what happened at the cross. Christ revealed God. And that's why the cross becomes the place we glory in, because that's who the God I worship is. That's what he's like. Yes, I can worship a God that gives all. He's the center of the universe, but he's the center of self-giving, other-centered love. He's the center of the universe, but he demonstrates his authority by being self-sacrificial. In my field, whether a pastor or a physician or an academic, whatever it is, really my success is going to be realizing that all my wisdom is foolishness and that my real success is going to be revealing God. In the book Medical Ministry, Ellen White says this, true medical missionary work is of heavenly origin. In all its bearings, its work is to be in conformity with Christ's work. Those who are workers together with God will just as surely represent the character of Christ as Christ represented the character of his Father while in this world. That's our success. 
Not many wise, not many intelligent, not many successful, not many mighty. So that no man can boast before God. Verse 30. But by his doing, this is all God's activity, this is God's work. Verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God. You know, we thought we knew what wisdom was. We thought we knew what correct was, what wise was. We thought we knew what foolish was. We thought we knew what a scandal was. But we come to the cross, it's all turned upside down. Christ becomes wisdom from God. But not only wisdom, everything else we need, right? Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Is the cross like the sun to you? If it was removed from your life, would your life be darkened? Is the cross really the place by which you measure everything else, where you see what's foolish, what's wise, what's worth glorying in, what's worth boasting in? If it's not, I pray that it will become so this weekend. That we'll refocus, we'll be retrained to see that the cross is where God reveals himself. That's an offense to the world. But because it's an offense to the world, it's the place that I can glory because it shows me that there is a God worthy of worship in this world. Continuing, nothing will help us more to realize how sacred is this kind of work, medical missionary work, and how perfectly it corresponds with the life work of the great missionary. The object of our mission is the same as the object of Christ's mission. Why did God send his son to the fallen world? For one purpose, to make known and to demonstrate God's love for humanity. And that's our purpose. That's why we exist, to show people what God is like. And what an opportunity. Those of you that work in the medical world, medical missionary work, coming with people in their trials and torments, you know, if you're sick, if you're aching, you're in pain, there's nothing more refreshing than having your pain relieved when you're in pain. Amen? Well, there's a lot of spiritual pain that people feel in this world, pain of guilt, anxiety, what to make sense out of this world, and that kind of pain is only removed as people come to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the, the offense is transformed into a place of glory. May it be that we boast in nothing. Paul says in 2, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2, for I am determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. That's what's going to set your priorities straight. That's what's going to make you effective. That's what's really going to give you success. A nice facility, it can burn up tomorrow. A successful program, someone else can make a better one tomorrow. Uh, you know, great skill massaging people, you could break your hands tomorrow. Sorry, I'm not trying to cast gloom on any of you. But everything we depend on is temporary except for the cross of Jesus Christ. One more quotation from Desire of Ages. Page 300, the proud heart strives to earn salvation. So I wonder in the scale, I hope I'm, I hope I'm being offensive. On the scale of you know, one to 10, do you think physicians as a group have a problem with pride? 
I know pastors do. The proud heart strives to earn salvation, but both our title and fitness to heaven are found where? They're found in the righteousness of Christ, which is displayed at the cross. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency. And that's what the cross does, my friends. It strips you of your self-sufficiency. This foolish place, there's a man being crucified, and you're telling me that's the place of salvation? That is crazy. But it's the truth. And it's only when we realize it and our self-sufficiency is stripped away and we realize our weakness, that can re- we can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. So we're left with the risk to trust God and be saved by his folly, or keep up our own pretensions and think, pretend that everything's okay, pretend that we're wise, pretend that we've got it together, Pretend that things are going well. Pretend that we're successful. Trust God in his folly or pretend. What's our choice going to be? I hope that each one of us this weekend will be drawn to the foolishness, the folly of the cross as the place of our security. To the perishing, the cross is an offense. It's folly. It's unwise. It's uncool. But it's God's folly. It's God's offense. And it's God's salvation for every one of us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to come apart from the pressures of our work, our life, to be refreshed through fellowship with one another, to consider the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you were able to change a place of stigma, of reproach, and to transform it into something that the universe is going to glory in for eternity because it's where you are revealed. Father, may we come to you in our need, in our nakedness, in our weakness, and be fully clothed, be fully enriched, be fully blessed at the foot of the cross of Christ. In his name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.